shall we chat through on this music podcast? Perhaps the monkeys or maybe some outcast. A whole expose on Rebecca Black's Friday. The booty blues octave, new orders blue Monday. Some Shania Twain, the albums of Train. Garth Brooks in disguise as the life of Chris Gaines. No less Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. And you can find show notes and our full episode archive at our website, discordpod.com. Roll call. Mike DeFabio. Phil Maddox. John McFerrin. And Ben Marlin. This week, I want to start out by thanking our newest Patreon donors, Megan and Tommy. You both are amazing. Woot. If other listeners... <laughs> yes, woot. Indeed. If other listeners like what you hear and want to support us with a monthly donation, you can visit patreon.com slash discordpod, and we're currently putting together a whole bunch of cool bonus episodes. Finally, if you have any thoughts about the show or just want to say hi, we're on both Twitter and Instagram at discordpod, and you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Phil. What album do you have for us, Phil? And it better have a flute. Well, you are in luck then, because this <laughs> week we are talking about Jethro Tull's 1969 sophomore LP, Stand Up. Mm. Ah, excellent choice. But why? Why this album, Phil? So basically, anybody that knows me knows that I really love Jethro Tull. What? Yeah, shocking, I know. But when I got into this community a long time ago, a lot of it was through my love of Jethro Tull, and I kind of became known as the Tull guy. But they're a band that I still love a great deal to this day. And of all their albums, they have several interesting ones, some of which, like Thick as a Brick, are great but would be difficult to work in our format, some of which are bad and thus we wouldn't want to do them. But I thought Stand Up was an interesting choice because it catches the bands at a very pivotal moment in their history. They were leaving behind their old style and adapting a new one, a new one that they wouldn't stick with for very long because within a couple of years they had gone full out prog. But here they hit upon a very interesting sound that I kind of wish there was more material in the vein of because for a very brief period here, Jethro Tull could make a legitimate claim to being the best rock band in the world. And it's kind of a shame that this album tends to be forgotten in favor of some of their later works when I think this is as good as anything they did. All right. Well, why don't you tell us your personal history with Jethro Tull? Well, I had heard the Aqualung album growing up, 
because my parents had a copy of it and I listened to it plenty. Also had the original Masters compilation and the MU compilation, all of which I played a ton of times. The thing that really got me into Jethro Tull heavily is when I got a copy of Thick as a Brick because I was very intrigued by its one forty-five minute long song gimmick, which it's really not one forty-five minute long song. It's got several distinct sub songs in it that are all just kind of stitched together. But that was a very important album to me. That was the album that really kind of got me into a lot more experimental and interesting music. Because before that, I was listening to either what was on classic rock stations or just what was on the regular rock stations. And it kind of opened my eyes to a whole world of new and different and more interesting music, which kind of led me to where I am today. So I eventually bought all their albums. And this was at a time where... A lot of them were out of print, so I had to really dig around trying to find these records, but I eventually got them all, and then I ended up getting remasters and deluxe editions and everything, so they're a band I have a deep history with, because even if I don't love them as much as I used to, they're one of those bands that will always be on the first tier of bands I talk about when I'm thinking of who are my favorite band. All right, uh, John, what's your history with the Tull? All right, so uh, I first became acquainted with them in 1998 in my senior year of high school. Uh, I think it was my brother bought me a copy of the original Masters compilation from the 80s as a Christmas present. And to be totally honest, I found it very boring. And so for a couple of months, I was like, okay, I've I've given this a chance. I don't like this band. I'm just going to move on. Um, But then later in my senior year, I learned that, oh, this Thick as a Brick track that has this three-minute uh, excerpt on that compilation is actually part of a of a much longer album that is, as Phil said, uh, is framed as a, as a single 45-minute song, even though there's a lot more to it. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give this a listen. It's probably going to be a silly gimmick, and I can forget about it. And it split my mind open, and I loved it. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I was wrong. And then I came back to that compilation. I was like, okay, this is really good. So over the next uh, year, especially once I got into college, I started buying Jethro Tull albums where I could, uh, even though, as Phil said, uh, quite a few of them were out of print. So I'd get them through, like, uh, the BMG music service or through through stores around me and did the best that I could. Now, this album I came across in late 1999. I'm pretty sure it was not in print until probably a couple of months uh, before I found it. Um, I'd seen it receive glowing reviews uh, in a couple of places. I was like, okay, let's let's give this a shot. And I loved this one right away. It became uh, one of my very favorite albums basically instantly. And I realized, oh, Jethro Tull is a band that I really have to take seriously, even though there were quite a few albums from theirs that I was kind of lukewarm on. They had at least two or three massive towering masterpieces or near masterpieces that I kept coming back to. I was like, okay, I, I guess I really like this band, despite all the stuff I don't like. So, And over the years, my position on them is more or less maintained there. Um, they're a band where I like the peaks, I love their live work, and there's 
an underclass that I tend to ignore, but the best stuff of them is enough to make them a band that I regard very highly. All right, Ben, what is your what is your rich and varied history with Jethro Tull? <laughs> My earliest memory of Jethro Tull is listening to the classic rock radio in Miami, Big 106. And one of their, you know, they would do those promos where the rock stars would come on and say, this is so-and-so. And I remember hearing, this is Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. <laughs> and right away, I hated him. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I had heard Aqualong and Bungle in the Jungle on the radio a lot. I like them. I like them a lot. And uh, they do have another radio hit that I like even more. And I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. I've still had a hard time with, with their overall aesthetic. As talented as all the guys in the band are, and you'll see on this album, they prove that over and over. Jethro Tull is Ian Anderson's band pursuing Ian Anderson's vision. And to me, at least, Ian can be kind of off-putting. His voice has a small range and basically one timber, so you either like that noise or you don't, and I've never been crazy about it. While he can write some solid choruses and some of the best rock riffs of the 60s and 70s, and I'll come back to that, he seems more committed to dancing around with his flute and indulging in Renaissance Fair cosplay. Uh, I'm not as enamored of that side of the music. But I joined the episode not just to bring the Discord, but because I genuinely really like this album. And uh, I'm glad Phil chose it to talk about. It's got more of the stuff I like about Jethro Tull and less of the stuff that aggravates me. Here, here. Yeah, to get into their later albums, I like them probably more than Ben and John do. But Ian Anderson is very, let's say, idiosyncratic. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't get into his whole thing, and it's definitely his whole thing and nobody else's, then you're going to struggle with those later records. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as for me, my introduction to Jethro Tull was... uh... The song, A Song for Jeffrey on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus album, hmm. which my mom bought for my dad one year. And I thought it was a cool song. It had had that flute riff and the guy singing sounded like a hobo. And <laughs> in the picture of the band in in the, the booklet of the CD, he, he kind of looked like a hobo. And to to this day, I still have no idea what what the words to that song are. Nobody does. Uh, yeah, there might not be any words. Who knows? But I, I thought that was a cool song, but I didn't bother to listen to any Jethro Tull beyond that until a few years later when I started really getting into Prague. And uh, I heard Aqualong. That, I thought it was kind of neat, but it took a while to, to really get under my skin. But much like uh, Phil and John, the album that really turned me into a, a Jethro Tull uh, semi-fan, at least, was Thick as a Brick. That album just knocked me flat from the first listen. I got into this album shortly thereafter. Thanks, Berkeley Library. <laughs> All right. So, Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Jethro Tull and Stand Up? Ah, gladly. But I mean to 
So Ian Anderson, the man who would eventually become synonymous with Jethro Tull, played in a couple bands with his friends throughout the mid-60s, some of whom, such as John Evans, Barry Barlow, and Jeffrey Hammond, would end up joining later incarnations of Tull. However, by late 1967, Anderson's then-unnamed band, that would later become Tull, had solidified its lineup. Ian Anderson on rhythm guitar and vocals, Mick Abrahams on lead guitar and vocals, Glenn Cornick on bass, and Clive Bunker on drums. During these early days, the band changed their name on a near-nightly basis, performing under such names as Bago Blues and Navy Blue, to the point where one time Ian Anderson said that sometimes they would show up for a place where they were booked, look at the marquee, look for the band they didn't recognize, and realize, oh, that's us. (laughs) Yeah. So one night, a booker named Dave Robson suggested they go by Jethro Tull, the name of a 17th century agriculturist. The band didn't even know that there was a real Jethro Tull. They just thought the name sounded fine and they went with it. This is also when the band started picking up more of a following and becoming more popular, so the name ended up sticking whether they liked it or not. And they didn't. (laughs) So back in this era when the band started out, Tull was basically a straightforward blues band. And Abrahams was the band's de facto leader by nature of being the lead guitarist and singing about half the songs. His musical vision also largely dominated this early work. Anderson didn't like being thought of as a second fiddle, though, and he decided that he needed to do something to stand out more. He eventually landed on becoming a flautist. He purchased a flute at a pawn shop and learned to play it within a matter of weeks, much to the chagrin of many people who thought that the flute didn't really belong in a hardcore blues band. So the band eventually got signed and released their debut single, a simple poppy Abrahams tune called Sunshine Day. during to a typo, this single was released attributed to Jethro Toe, T-O-E. <laughs> I was going to ask about that, like if there was a significance to it, because that's always confused me, but it was a typo? It was a typo. Okay. Though Ian Anderson has said that perhaps it would have been better if they had used that name, because then they wouldn't be named after an old figure and would actually have a name that wasn't just some other guy. <laughs> So after a couple more singles, the band finally got around to releasing their debut album, This Was, in 1968. It was named This Was because by the time the album was released, the band was already convinced that it represented a style that the band no longer performed. They even put in the liner notes to the record when it was released, This Was How We Performed Back Then, because they had already kind of moved on. Largely under Abraham's and Anderson's co-leadership, The album was primarily a cream-style blues-based affair, though Anderson was already dragging the band into jazzier territory, including tracks like a cover of Roland Kirk's Serenade to a Cuckoo, the first song he learned on the flute.
By this point, the tension between Abrahams, who wanted to play the blues and very little else, and Anderson, who wanted the band to be considerably more eclectic, had come to a head. Anderson had already written a great deal of the material that would end up on stand-up, and Abrahams wasn't particularly interested in it. It was increasingly clear that the two of them couldn't be in a band together and that one of them had to go. It's unclear to what extent he quit the band and to what extent he was pushed out of the band, but Abrahams ended up leaving after recording one final single with the band, Love Story, which was already drifting pretty far from the blues. didn't even stick around long enough to record the B-side, a Christmas song. After a brief period where the band was looking for a new guitarist, including a brief stint with Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath fame, who can be Whoa. seen miming along to a song for Jeffrey on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus special, the band ended up hiring Martin Barr, an excellent and unknown guitar player who was far more willing to go along with Anderson's flights of fancy than Abraham's was. He would be the only constant other than Anderson through the rest of the band's history. With Barr in tow and without Abrahams around to fight with, Anderson assumed total control of the band and set to work recording Stand Up, the album we're here to talk about today. All right, so let's get into the album proper. This is track one, where albums usually begin. <laughs> this is A New Day Yesterday. This is how to open a song. I talk about the band pursuing a new direction, this album kicks off with a blast of heavy blues. A New Day Yesterday, however, absolutely demolishes anything that the band had done before. While still based in the blues, the song is way more heavy and riff-driven than their previous efforts, such as My Sunday Feeling or Move On Alone. Not that those were bad songs, they were very good songs. This is just clearly overwhelmingly better. One of my favorite parts of this song is the weird variant of the main riff that plays during the verses. Rather than just continue to pound the main riff home during the verses, the band plays a more off-kilter menacing version of the riff that, for lack of a better way to put it, just kicks an ungodly amount of ass. This is also a good time to talk about weird 60s studio trickery. You may have noticed that the guitar sound is kind of weird and phasing 
during this. The way they did that was while they were playing, they swung the microphone around the amp. Whoa, <laughs> that's great. That is great. So the way the reason the riff swings around like it does is because they're literally swinging the microphone. Ah, oh, I love old school recording techniques so much. <laughs> this song is also a good place to talk about Anderson's flute playing. While he largely picked up the instrument as a gimmick just to help stand out more, it certainly doesn't sound like a gimmick here. His aggressive playing style manages to make the flute actually rock. I love other rock flautists like Ray Thomas or Peter Gabriel, but they never made the flute rock quite like Anderson did. Anderson said uh, when they beat Metallica for the the best metal performance Grammy, the flute is a heavy metal instrument. (laughs) This is just a great way to start an album. Man, it it just hits you with so many things that are cool about Jethro Tull. You've got that sweet riff to start it all off, which is entirely unlike any riff you've ever heard. And I think I remember reading somewhere that uh, that was that riff was Tony Iommi's one contribution to Jethro Tull. He, he came up with that riff. I hadn't heard that, but that wouldn't surprise me because it's pretty Sabbath. It is. Yeah, it's it's de- definitely yeah heavier than your typical Jethro Tull riff. But it's also, you know, it's got the flute in the middle, which I hope you like because uh, you're not going to hear any less of it. <laughs> and Ian Anderson, regardless of, of how you feel about his actual vocal style, for one thing, the guy can just sing or at least in those days, you know, before he be, kind of became growly doggy and Anderson. But uh, so many of these old prog bands, you know, the the singers for these bands, whether it was Ian Anderson, John Anderson, Peter Gabriel, Greg Lake, they always sounded, they always had so much character. They always sounded like as, as soon as they started singing, it's, it was like they had like a fully formed backstory and you, you mm-hmm. knew something about them. And, you know, Marillion do not have that. Uh, <laughs> no. Or even, you know, as much as I like Porcupine Trees, Stephen Wilson does not have that sort of uh, amount of personality. No, um, he sounds like a guy. He sounds like a guy. Yeah. And he's fine. But he's he's not one of these you know, real characters that you got from one of these bands. And Ian Anderson, uh, like him or not, he's he's definitely he, he is a fully formed character. He is charismatic. He has yeah. a magnetism to him. He does. And uh I don't know why this song isn't as uh, ubiquitous on classic rock radio as something like, I don't know, Sunshine of Your Love or Light My Fire or something else that everybody knows. Everybody should know this song. Because it doesn't sound like what people think Jethro Tull sound like. Yeah, I guess. All right. Well, John, what do you what do you have to say about this song? I love Martin Barr. Hmm. I love him so much. I think he's criminally underrated. I think he's just about the ideal um, cross between the worlds of classic rock and art rock. Uh, I love his versatility. He could do so many different things. And 
and he he's, he does a lot of things on this album, but just through the th- through the course of his time at Jethro Tull, you know, I don't love all of what he's asked to play, but I love the way he, that he plays it. And when he's at his best, like here, he is he's one of my very favorite guitarists. I I really love the riff. There's a, there's this little bendy down accent that uh, th- this little bendy down part uh, as he's playing the riff each time that I always uh, really love. The first version of this song I actually heard was from a, a later live album called Bursting Out, uh, where the riff is played more straight. So when I heard the studio version of this, I was not prepared for the like on on every repetition of it. I really like the <laughs> on on every repetition of it a lot. And yeah, I like the, the the way that the flute and the guitar spars in the middle. It's very lively. It's a blues jam, but unlike any other type of blues jam you would hear. Yeah, this song is great. This if this isn't in my top ten of Toll songs, it's right knocking on the edge. So that live album bursting out is so ex- good. It's very excellent. But the band by that point had gone fully into prog and folk territory. Yes, and. On the rare occasions they reached back as far as this, it's clear they couldn't play it like they used to. Correct. They sound a lot better playing their contemporary material on that album than playing their old material. Yes, I agree. Yeah, they weren't they weren't really as as kind of greasy as they sound on here, for lack of a better word. That's a good word for it. <laughs> uh, ben, what do you what do you think of this one? Now that you've said the riff is Tony Iommi, I can't hear it any other way. Like, it makes perfect sense. And as good as Ian Anderson was at writing these classic riffs, that just it sounds so much like a Sabbath riff. And I like what Mike said about Ian Anderson being a character and whatever one thinks of it. I mean, he decided on who he was and he just went with it and he doesn't seem to care what anybody thinks. And, and that's admirable. Um, having only heard Jethro Tull on the radio And, you know, as John said, they play songs that sound like Jethro Tull. This was revelatory for me. I knew they could do catchy songs, but I didn't know they could rock like this. This is great hard rock. I'm not always too into hard rock with a few exceptions. Usually when the song is just too good to ignore, like the best ACDC songs, You Shook Me All Night Long. And I don't even know if A New Day Yesterday is one of those just classic radio type songs but i love the way it sounds i love how interesting it is and just how hard it rocks everything gels the jazz drums from future horror novelist clive bunker uh, (laughs) the exploratory bass playing martin Barr's killer guitar i echo everything john said about him except he knows more about it than i do and even ian anderson's prancing leprechaun thing uh it's a great song and a great opener to the album all right, so for done with a new day yesterday, let's move on to track two. Jeffrey goes to Leicester Square. address the big question first. Namely, who the hell is Jeffrey and why is he going to Leicester Square? So Jeffrey is Anderson's longtime pal Jeffrey Hammond, 
later renamed by Anderson Jeffrey Hammond Hammond, because he <laughs> thought that sounded better for some reason. I'm willing to chalk it up to Ian Anderson's weird. What's that Hammond hmm. for? That's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Dukes of Stratosphere name or something. Yeah, that's good. So Jeffrey had played in bands with Anderson before the band's lineup settled in 1967, and he and Anderson remained close. By the Aqualung album in 1971, Hammond had replaced Glenn Cornick on the bass guitar. Prior to that, though, for reasons known only to him, Ian Anderson kept writing songs with Jeffrey's name in the title, starting with a song for Jeffrey from This Was... which was followed by this one, which was followed by for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and me from the subsequent benefit LP. I'm with you. for why he went to Leicester Square. Anderson said in the liner notes for a deluxe edition of the stand-up album that it was just a place Hammond liked to go and wander around. Nothing more to it than that. So this track is comparatively minor, but it marks a clear break from the band's blues-based roots, an Indian-sounding folk-ish song composed on and for the balalaika, an instrument Anderson loved the sound of but hated playing because he couldn't get them to stay in tune. Hence, after this song, he abandoned the instrument. This song is a fun little reminder of his brief experiment with them. So just a quick note note about this song. Uh, Martin Barr actually plays some flute on this one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a different uh, arrangement from usual. Something on this album has to be last, and this album, this I would say this song is last. But here's the thing: it's it's not bad. I like it, um, but it's 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 minor. It's it's an interesting little nothing that just happens to have uh, some interesting instrumentation to it. I mean, a balalaika wasn't a regular part of of this album or, or of Jethro Tull in general. So it's fun. It's interesting. I find myself uh, just thinking of it as an appetizer for what's to come. Right. I would describe it as deliberately slight. I don't think Anderson yes. thought that this was a centerpiece of the album. Correct. And that's to its credit. Like, he knows what he's doing with this. It, it would be one thing if he had written, a, if he had tried to make a serious song here and that had ended up being the least on the album, that would be a problem. Whereas this is nice. It's fine. And the album passes by it and gets to other things. All right. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I echo you guys. It, it's pretty. It's not very distinct, uh, but it's got energy. I like the watery rhythm guitar line. It helps keep the album from getting too heavy. Like, I I wouldn't want a whole album of this, but as a little break between hard rock songs, I like it. These kind of songs make me think of uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, how they have those little kalimba interludes between songs. And they're nice. You You wouldn't play them on the radio, but they work in context. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with all of you. It's just a, a nice little breather track. Uh, it's it's well-placed between two of the heavy hitters on the album. It might be the only place where you get to hear a balalaika through a Leslie speaker. So <laughs> y- you get you get that. All right, but let's move on to uh, a song nobody really cares about. It's a cover of a song by some old dead guy. 
and it's called <laughs> it's called bure or something by bake by bake <laughs> <laughs> As a new day yesterday was similar in style to the band's bluesier numbers of the past, this one is similar in style to the band's earlier jazzier efforts like Serenade to a Cuckoo. Also, much like a new day yesterday, this track blows previous similar efforts out of the water. It's way better than the band's previous attempts at being jazzy. It feels way more developed, like the band had finally fully figured out what it was trying to do. It no longer feels like they're trying to imitate anybody. They've evolved fully into their own style. Also, unlike tracks like Serenade to a Cuckoo, which was based on an existing jazz tune, this is a reinterpretation of Bach's Bori in E minor. many other rock bands who would attempt to reinterpret classical music and make it sound unbearably cheesy. <laughs> Emerson, Lake and Palmer's Nut Rocker. This doesn't sound cheap at all. It's really hard to describe just how well this works, so I'll just throw in a clip so you can hear just how hard the band was cooking here. song yeah i love this uh, it makes bach rock please forgive me for that <laughs> the flute makes more sense here than it does on the harder rocking songs uh and i just noticed when listening to this clip that you got the double tracked flute so so there's flute in each channel most of the time i'm not sure that the world needed heavy metal flute uh but this is lovely it fits perfectly um, and it's a Jethro Tull song without Ian Anderson singing. So for me, it's in the upper echelon. Did Bach need this? I don't know, but it's awesome. It, I guess it shouldn't matter whether classical music needed this because it just works so perfectly on its own. All right, John. Oh, I love this one. <laughs> um, so a couple of things. So a, a, a Bore, uh, just in general, is actually a style. So the the bore the this particular bore is an example of a bore. Um, but but generally speaking, a bore 
it was a type of dance and music that was written for this dance would be part of what were called dance suites. It was basically a, a suite of uh, of numbers for people in of nobility to 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 go through various dances at, at a formal event or whatever. So a bore is supposed to be very posh, very elegant. And this goes way, way beyond that. It's it's a combination of it, it takes the the bare root of of the original melody. It it crashes it into classical. It, uh, sorry, it takes the classical root, it cra- crashes it into rock, it crashes it into jazz. And after a while, like, you have these three styles intermingling with each other. And it, there's no clear idea of what the divisions are until the divisions are just gone. And it, it just keeps developing and, and developing. And the all the, the thing that I, I, I've come to realize about this piece over the years is that there's an internal logic to everything. Everything grows out of something that, that had come before. And even when you get to the point where you have a bass solo. Everything about this would have horrified Bach if he had been able to some how been able to hear it. But that especially would be like, wait, wait, what? No, this is this is not what you're supposed to do. It's it's so vulgar. It's so it's so against what these types of musics are supposed to do, and it is so great. This is my favorite uh, piece on the album. It's one of my very favorite uh, Jethro Tull tracks. I love every version that gets slammed on whatever live release they they come up with. I Loved hearing this on the Christmas album, even though it has nothing to do with Christmas. It's just like, great, hmm. Bore, whatever. I, I want to hear it again. <laughs> this this is so fantastic, just from start to finish. I know Ian Anderson in particular really loves it. He said that if he hasn't played his flute for a while, when he's trying to get back into it, like this is the first thing he plays. Yeah, I, I can see that. There are so many things to like about Bore. You've all uh, touched on quite a few of them, but I, I mean, I could... I could just sit here while the song plays and just be like, I, I like that bit and I like that bit and just like enumerate <laughs> all of them as the song plays. But I'll, I'll focus on two things. One is that, uh, like Phil mentioned, usually when uh, when rock bands uh, started trying their hand at Bach, it was usually something you know very, very, very pompous and grandiose. And uh, you know, it was something I'm thinking of, you know, again, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, the, the songs were there quoting Bach although you know like Knife Edge I, I love that song but it's it does have that feeling of oh we are very important and very serious or like yeah. uh, or and and uh, Jimmy Page used to quote this all the time in the middle of you yes. know his his hugely self-indulgent solos in the middle of Dazed and Confused so so he and Heartbreaker oh it was Heartbreaker yeah in the middle of Heartbreaker here uh, what Jethro Tull do with it is they they turn it into hip cat beatnik music I, I yeah. just I love that I just the the lighthearted approach to it that they're just they're just having fun with it. Right, uh, this isn't pretentious at all. No, oh, no, not at all. No, they they just sound like they're really enjoying themselves, and uh, you get more you you really get more of of Ian Anderson's flute style on this one. You know, if you've never heard Jethro Tull before, this really introduces you to how he plays the flute. And Phil mentioned Roland Kirk. I'd like to put a clip here of a song. From one of Roland Kirk's earlier albums, uh, We Free Kings. It's a song called uh, You Did It, You Did It. 
because it, it really shows the influence that Roland Kirk had on Ian Anderson with uh, his whole uh, singing through the flute routine. And I I especially like the very end of this song where uh, it sounds like Ian Anderson is trying to eat the flute while he's playing it. Yes. (laughs) I think on later Jethro Tull albums, Ian Anderson got more technically proficient at the flute, but I don't think I've ever liked the sound of his flute playing more than here. Yeah. My understanding is he didn't know how to properly finger a flute until like 1994. No, it was around the Roots to Branches album. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. All right. Uh, Let's get back to the family. This is Trek 4. A telephone wakes me. This song's primary gimmick is the contrast between the softer parts and the harder rocking parts, such as this. contrast between these two parts works very well. It doesn't hurt that the band is clearly on fire. In particular, bass player Glenn Cornick sounds amazing on this track. He's one of the best bass players out there that I never see included on lists of the all-time greatest bass players. Listen to his playing on this track. This is some John Entwistle quality playing. His tenure with the band was very short. He was only on their first three albums and then kind of wasn't heard from anymore which is really unfortunate because he was fantastic and I wish I could have heard more of his playing. As an actual song, this one's kind of slight, but I don't care because I just want to listen to the band play and boy, can they play. This is a song uh, where you need to be very careful if you're listening to this on a highway because if you're not paying attention, by the end, you'll be going 15 miles over the speed limit. <laughs> this is another uh, great example of how much uh, I love Ma- Martin Barr and why I love him so much. The main part of the song uh, in, in the softer verses is kind of just a, a gentle pop blues ballad. 
but he's very, very adept at, at, at navigating and getting through it. But then the contrast between that and the <laughs> chords is both of these parts sound every bit as natural to him as the other. And then when you get to that coda where, where, where Martin and Ian are, it's like they're, they're, they're each, uh, you know, going back to the, the car analogy, they're almost, they're almost like trying to outrace each other, trying to out intensify each other, just trying to burn the album down um, th- through their energy. And I, I like this so much. This was, this was an instant major winner for me. And part of why I liked this album so much, um, in my first couple of listens. All right, Ben, how about you? Again, the, the jazzy drums from Clive Bunker do so much for this song. I mean, as much as I love a big straight down the middle rock beat, and maybe I need to reconsider that because I love what the jazzy drums do. Um, they make the song swing. Uh, and Clive is just amazing on this album. I also like uh, Martin Barr's very modern sounding guitar solo at the end. And I have to say that for all of Ian Anderson's folksy, eccentric gnominess, uh, he was willing to incorporate kick-ass rock guitar into the mix. I think it's because he knew what a talent he had found in Martin Barr, and he didn't want to make the mistake of letting him go, whatever it might have done to his original vision for the music. Maybe if he'd found the world's greatest tuba player, he would have kept him around too, but although I'm glad he went with guitar. And he made the right decision to to keep Martin Barr around because the mixture they make is just thrilling. I'm just trying to imagine those chords played on a tuba. <laughs> yeah. One feature of this album, and you see it less on later albums, but it still shows up, are guitar and flute duels between Barr and Anderson. And even on later albums or songs where the song isn't particularly great, those are always great. Just listening to those two play off each other is always fantastic. Uh, ben, I like that point you made about the drumming. I I've, I feel like the with yeah. with a more straightforward drummer, the the heavier parts of the song could have been kind of leaden, but uh, he keeps it moving really well. The Cornick Bunker rhythm section is criminally underrated. Oh yeah, yeah, they're a huge part of of what makes this album work so well. Uh, I've I've always liked this song a lot. It's it's got a structure that I really like, which is just start soft, get heavy, take off, repeat. You know, as far as the the subject matter of the song goes, it's it's a song about a guy who's basically dissatisfied no matter where he is. And what the the song that it always reminds me of is uh, Spinal Tap's Hellhole, where <laughs> the, the first verse he's complaining about being in a hellhole, and then in the second verse he he misses his hellhole and he wants to get back to it. <laughs> and and you know the guys in Spinal Tap know their rock history, so I I have to wonder if this song was on their minds when they were writing mm. that. But yeah, everything you guys have, have said about the song is absolutely true. The 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 playing, the energy they have is just fantastic. But with that, uh, I think we ought to move on to the most socially irresponsible song on the album. Here, Jethro Tull <laughs> are telling impressionable young listeners to look into the sun. <laughs> One of whom was in his early 20s at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly 
Looking to the Sun is a very pretty song. Ian Anderson was getting better at writing pretty songs because there was nothing that I would call pretty on, say, the This Was LP. For me, when I listen to this album, it always strikes me as one of the weaker songs on the album, not because of any weakness in this song itself, but because it's somewhat similar to the later song Reasons for Waiting, which is one of my favorite songs by anyone. So... I always end up comparing the two, and this just isn't as good, which is not to say that it's not very good, because if you dropped this on most albums, it would be a highlight. I really like Martin Barr's little licks in the background throughout it. They add a lot to it. One interesting thing about the recording of this song is that I've been praising the bass playing of Glenn Cornick frequently, but the bass playing in this song sounds a little bit more standard. The reason for that is that Glenn Cornick is not playing on it. So the recording sessions for this song demonstrate the extent to which the band was becoming an Ian Anderson project. Anderson was in the studio and wanted to record this song, but for reasons nobody can remember at this point, Glenn Cornick wasn't available. So Ian Anderson just got studio engineer Andy Johns to play on it instead. Anderson said that he knew that Cornick wouldn't be happy, but he went ahead anyway. They managed to smooth things out, but it definitely demonstrates that Ian was already starting to think of Jethro Tull as him plus a backing band, rather than as any kind of democratic unit. I guess after fighting with Abrahams over band control, he wanted to make it clear that he was in charge. Yeah, I'm, I'm echoing what Phil said. This, this is a slightly lesser cousin to the upcoming song Reasons for Waiting, just like I'm a slightly lesser cousin to the lawyers, accountants, and engineers in my family. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Lovely and understated. It's just a little bit less melodically distinct than the later song. But, and again, I'll echo Phil here. I, I really like that Martin Barr's grace notes and how they mesh with Anderson's strumming. And I like that somehow they, they snuck wah-wah guitar onto an acoustic ballad and it it's not jarring. It, it works. I always wish someone else was singing, but but it's a fine song. I never complain when it's on, and I really like complaining, so that's saying something. Yeah, I agree that it's second uh, to Reasons for Waiting, but that also means that it's my second favorite Jethro Tull ballad. Uh, I, now, and I say that with, with the caveat that I don't I, – I mean, Ian Anderson wouldn't write that many quiet uh, acoustic songs for his career, but he would write a, a, a handful of them, and I – tend not to love them i'm just thinking of things from like minstrel minstrel in the gallery where he wrote uh, requiem and one white duck i don't really like those songs and 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 the ballads from jethro toll for for the most part don't do a lot for me but i love both of these songs and and again like this one is definitely lesser than reasons for waiting but it's it's very delicate it's very memorable i i, I liked what ben said about the the wawa guitar uh, in the background it's 
it, it's very subtle. It's very delicate. It's, it's just like a little, uh, like a little drizzle of chocolate syrup on a on on some vanilla ice cream. Oh, that's good. It's really nice, and it's not one of the the major highlights of the album. But I I really like it. It's 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 really pretty, and it's again the fact that I consider this a middling song on this album speaks more to the album uh, than to the song per se. I like one white duck. <laughs> I know every every Jethro Tull song, every Jethro Tull fan likes it, except for me. <laughs> Requiem's not very good though. Yeah, I pretty much agree with all of you about this one. It's not my favorite ballad on the album, but it, it is very good. I, I like it. I, I agree about the the nice little little dribbles of wah wah in the background. I th- I think Ian Anderson's vocal is really what sells it. And I'm kinda I'm curious about the the vocal effect going on. It's not quite a not quite a Leslie effect. It's, it kind of sounds like he's singing into an oscillating fan. I'm wondering if they were just like swinging a microphone in front of Ian Anderson while he sang. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. So let's move on to track six. Nothing is easy. <laughs> One of the best Tull songs of all time, a song that in a just world would be all over every classic rock radio station constantly. I'll tell you what, if my local classic rock radio station replaced one of the seven or so times an hour it played Centerfold by the Jay Giles Band, (laughs) I would take that. That's that's all I need. So Nothing Is Easy is basically the sound of the band moving entirely beyond the blues while still managing to just rock unbelievably hard. It was one of the first songs written for stand-up, likely written while Abrahams was still in the band, and had been played live before the album was recorded, where I'm sure the audiences received it very warmly. The song is basically just a couple of short verses, each followed by a bunch of opportunity for the band to show off their chops, And boy, do they succeed in showing off how great they are.
just killer stuff, but it also never gets too self-indulgent or long. The band comes in, they kick your ass, they go away. Just a perfect song. This song definitely has my favorite drumming on the whole album. I mean, oh, yeah. Clive yeah. Bunker is just killer on this whole album, but on this song, I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to that, that last clip just going, man, uh, uh, he's just, just killing it. It's just, just so, so propulsive throughout the whole song. And what I think is really neat about the song is it's kind of, you know, it's a heavy rock song, but it's kind of a jazz song, too. You know, it's, it's yeah. really got that swing to it. It could it could be rearranged by a by a jazz group and it wouldn't sound, you know, it wouldn't sound too forced. It wouldn't be like, you know, the bad plus doing Smells Like Teen Spirit or something where you're like shoehorning jazziness into it. It's like it's really baked into the song. And you've also got uh, you've got more aggressive flute singing from Ian Anderson, which I always <laughs> like. Uh, John, how about you? Oh, this one is so good. Um, so one of my favorite random bits of trivia that I, that I learned probably 15, 20 years ago that I, I've always just found fascinating is that this is Eddie Vedder's favorite album. Hmm. When I first heard that, I was like, that's an odd choice. But apparently he listens to this every night before he performs. As like, what is the song on here that where that makes the most sense? And this is the song where that makes the most sense. Huh. And again, I say as someone who doesn't really like Pearl Jam that much, but I can totally hear why a song like this uh, would speak to him so much. I love the coda so much. Um, I, I like the way that there's that sequence where uh, each of the instruments get its, gets its brief little showcase. It, it reminds me of, even though it, it sounds totally different, it reminds me of the coda to remake, remodel. Oh, uh, yeah. The first Roxy Music album. It yeah. does. And... The other thing that that, that I that I was very proud of myself for noticing um, years ago with Dakota is, so there's this da 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 da, and what I realize is that it they there's a reason like why the tension for it builds so much. It's like you have one, then one two, one two three, one two three four, one two three four five, and it builds like that. So like there's this there's this accumulation effect in building the tension in the uh, rev up and rocket to the max section until you get to a section where they're just exploding the with the that's hitting the chords over and over and over again. It feels like an absolutely necessary way to bring it out. And yes, it is over, over, over the top um, in it's yeah, man, we we're bloody rocking now, but it's so great. And when I when I saw Jethro Tull for the only time about twenty years ago, this was the second song of the set, and it killed. I don't know how many other people there actually knew this song. I'm gonna guess it was uh, fewer than ten percent, but I was enjoying myself a lot. Um, yeah, I, I really love this one. Play Bungle in the Jungle. <laughs> yeah, I just love how it's in and out in four and a half minutes too. It yes. has all that stuff, <laughs> but it doesn't overstay its welcome. They don't need to throw in five minutes of solos. Normally wouldn't brag about that. But, yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben, how about you? This rocks. It, it doesn't rock the same way ACDC or the Rolling Stones would rock, but that's fine. It, it still rocks in its own unique way. Again, so much credit to the drummer, Clive Bunker. Um, his jazzy beat is just so interesting here. And everyone's following him, but but they all work together so well. You got the bass, the rhythm guitar, even the flute. Flute credit where due. 
uh, but especially the drums. I, I love listening to this song. So with that, we're going to move on to a tribute to one of William Conrad's many television characters. This is Fat Man. <laughs> Want to be a fat man People would think that I was just good fun Would rather be a thin man I am so glad to go on being one Too much to carry around with you No chance of finding a woman So this is the second song on side two. Nothing is easy being the first song on side two. And Tull started both of the sides very similarly. A big, hard rocking song followed by a kind of jokier, folky song. Tull would get a reputation in later years for being extremely self-serious the band did have a sense of humor, but by and large, the reputation for taking themselves overly seriously was well-deserved. That wasn't the case in the early days of the band. Anderson was capable of writing completely silly, fun songs such as this. I wish they'd continued writing songs in this vein instead of, say, getting mired in projects like a passion play, but alas. This is another tune written when Abrahams was still in the band. Ian Anderson had just bought a mandolin and wrote this while messing around with it. Ian Anderson has said that the song may have been written to make fun of Mick Abrahams, but he won't either straight up admit or deny it. Abrahams wasn't what anyone would call fat, but he was the biggest guy in the band. And by that point, Anderson and Abrahams were needling each other constantly, so there's a pretty good chance that it was in fact intended to needle him. Ian has also groused in the liner notes for the deluxe edition of Stand Up that he couldn't write this song today because it's not quote-unquote politically correct. <sighs> mm, poor white men. Yeah. But either <laughs> way, it's just a silly song that is very fun. It's got a great rhythm. I've always dug this song plenty. It might be a, a silly, frivolous song, but it's always been one of my favorites on the album. It's just so goofy. Especially near the end of the song where he concludes that the the disadvantage of being thin is that if you roll us both down a mountain, I'm sure the fat man would win. Ooh. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, well, it, it doesn't even make any sense. I just love that that's, that's how he concludes things. That's his closing argument. It's just so dumb. I love it's it. It's so dumb and ridiculous. It's great. And uh, it was also this was also used uh, to great effect in the film Boogie Nights. Oh, mostly just uh, the introductory percussion that you just loop a bunch of times during certain moments. I didn't realize. I love Boogie Nights, but I, I didn't know that song at, when I saw it. So that's I'll have to, to look for that next time. Yeah, I, I'll echo everybody else. It's cute. I like the Indianness, the bouncy rhythm. You can boogie to this one. It's strange hearing Ian Anderson trying to be funny because he's clearly sincere, but it comes out kind of stilted. Like he said, hey, guys, this is a thing that is funny, right? It gets you to want to make laughter. And they said, sure, Ian, it's a riot. So he put it on the album. This couldn't be a single, but but it's a fun interlude for the album. Yeah, the thing that 
makes me realize that I rate this album not just one that I really like, but as one that's pretty close to the top tier of my favorite albums is the fact that if I if if I rank the different songs on this album and I f- figure out okay what do I like more than the other ones, uh, this one comes like an eighth or ninth and it kind of rules. <laughs> <laughs> Like I mean, it's very silly. It's 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 clearly not supposed to be one of the big songs of it. But like, un, unlike Jeffrey goes to Leicester Square, this one is just. I I mean, yes, I I get what Ben is saying with that. It's it's like yes, I am making a funny, but it's it's amusing. The lyrics are just very very goofy, and and this is one that as as Jethro told Age, this this one kept emerging as 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 a concert favorite and, and just as a highlight just so a way to to, to break the seriousness uh, add add a dose of levity to a band that i mean they would they would have some forced levity here and there but this would this would seem more genuine than some of it and it's it's just a lot of fun and and i really like the placement on the album like this is the perfect place to put it um, as a way to be able to bridge between the blazing hard rocker and uh, the softer material that would come sooner. So yeah, I I really like it, and I really like how it's how it functions in the album as a whole. In terms of songs where Ian Anderson is trying to be funny, I will take him writing songs about the fat man any day over some of his later songs, which tended to mm. hit Frank Zappa levels of gross horniness. but phil she said she was a dancer yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right uh let's move on then to uh track eight we used to know on the dock does it highway (laughs) (laughs) nights of winter to know the chord sequence on this one sounds a little familiar can't quite put my finger on it oh yeah it's the exact same chord sequence as hotel california like exactly So yeah, this is a considerably better tune than Hotel California, and it's a shame that it's not more well-known. The melody is superb, and Anderson's singing really sells it. One interesting thing about it is that it never really changes its 
underlying music throughout the whole song. There's no clear bridge verse chorus structure. It just kind of rides the chord sequence and melody building and building until it culminates in the kinds of killer solos that this band could pull out at the drop of a hat at this point. A very simple song arranged very well that's just fantastically good. does a better Eric Clapton than Eric Clapton does. <laughs> the wah-wah parts that he uh, he throws in, or that he builds up to uh, in his climactic solo are, are so great. Uh, they don't feel at all gimmicky. They, they feel like uh, the inevitable, logical, emotional climax of, of what he's playing. But yeah, the main foundation of the song, it's, it's, a, it's a really good chord sequence, and the lyrics are, 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 are moving as these things go. Uh, I remember years ago seeing somebody uh, try to dismiss this song, saying that basically this is the world's first power ballad, which I, I guess yeah. I get. Not but really. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to be generous. Uh, <laughs> but if that's but if that's the case, then power ballads got off to a great start. Uh, this is a this is a magnificent song. I guess I got to stick up for Hotel California. <laughs> uh, it, admittedly, I'm sick of it after so many years of listening to classic rock radio, but. There's a reason it's been on classic rock radio for so many years. It's catchy, melodic, lyrically distinct. It's well played. The guitar solos are epic. There's a reason the Hotel California album went 26 times platinum and allowed Don Henley to become a majority stakeholder in Pablo Escobar's burgeoning empire down in Colombia. Hotel California is built like a brick house. It, it does just so happen that several of the bricks were manufactured by Ian Anderson and Co. <laughs> um, as for We Used to Know, it, it's a great Jethro Tull song. I mean, I, I'll echo what everybody said. The, the chord progression works, as we know. Um, I really like the slow but steady buildup, how Martin Barr's guitar soloing just gets louder and louder until a slow acoustic song is just screaming with intensity. I do still wish it had as good a radio hook as Hotel California. I'll say this about Hotel California. It's no the disco strangler. (laughs) (laughs) Now that uh, Ben is stuck up for Hotel California, I'll say that the the main point I had to make about this song is that it's what Hotel California would sound like if it were good. (laughs) But at the same time, I I do like the the Gypsy Kings version on the Big Lebowski soundtrack. So that's that's not exactly true. Hmm. But... um, it might not be a song I have a ton to say about, but it is a very, very good song. An interesting thing about this song is I think the band was so confident in it that it doesn't have an explicit hook. Right. Yeah. It's it just never, that strong. Yeah. It just never features a moment. They thought, we don't need to punch this up any. This is good enough. Just let it ride. And they were correct. Hmm. Yeah. Well, with that, let's move on to track nine. This is Reasons for Waiting. What a day for laughter 
and walking at night. Yeah, that's really pretty. Me following after your hand holding tight, and the memory stays clear with a song that you hear. If I can but make the words awake, the feeling. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Really works. Well, I've spent a lot of time talking about the kick-assness of the songs on this record. Anderson was really starting to come into his own as a ballad writer as well. He wasn't always going to be the strongest ballad writer in the world, but on this album, he was just amazing at it. This song is stunningly gorgeous. Easily the prettiest song Anderson had written to this point, and a strong candidate for the prettiest song he would ever write. The melody is wonderful, and the arrangement is perfect. The strings, arranged by longtime Tull collaborator and later member Dee Palmer, that slowly start appearing throughout the song are very tasteful and bring out the strength of the melody. It's, to me, an absolutely perfect song. It starts off quiet and pretty. It has a wonderful vocal melody. There's a great hook. I love that part. It doesn't sound out of place. The strings come in. It emphasizes everything. It ends after about three minutes. It's just beautiful and perfect. One of the best songs Tall ever did. One of my favorite songs by anybody. Yeah, I like Phil's point that this is a short song. Like It's the kind of song that, that a lot of musicians would let go on forever. Um, and I don't even think I realize how short it is. I think I just hear it and assume, oh, this one's like six minutes long. But I appreciate that they... They they knew when to stop. Yep, I, look, I just looked it it's up. They a, keep it to four. Still good. It's a gorgeous melody. I mean, you can sort of see how the sausage was made. The melody is the chord progression, and, and Anderson is strumming that chord progression. But it's a lovely chord progression. I'm not a big fan of Ian Anderson's vocals, as I think I've said, but he sings very sensitively here. The whole Jethro Tull aesthetic has never been one of my favorites it can be hard for me to take Ian Anderson for too long. Um, it, at its worst, the aesthetic can sound like the the Tom Bombadil section of Lord of the Rings set to rock music. Uh, but it could also make for moments of true beauty, and Reasons for Waiting is definitely one of those. I'm really sad that the this gentle, uh, emotionally vulnerable version of Ian Anderson was about to disappear for good. Uh, he's very hardened, very angry, uh, very much needing to strike out at whatever he saw was wrong with the world from here on out. And it was basically it, gone by the next album. Exactly. Like he he wouldn't do this again. It's really a shame because just for one glorious shining moment, he proved to be perfect at it. 
the melody is gorgeous. The the way that the flutes uh, intermingle with the strain arrangement, which is just oh great. Like Jethro Tull would have a lot of good strain arrangements going forward, and, and this ranks among the very very best. Um, yeah, this is this is an absolute knockout winner of a track, and it's really really a shame that the only people who ever would hear this song are people who are hardcore enough into Jethro Tull to buy the Jethro Tull album that only hardcore serious Jethro Tull album collectors would buy. This needs more exposure than it gets. This album was a pretty sizable hit when it came out, at least in the UK. It sold pretty well in the US too. But it's one of those albums whose stature has somewhat dropped with time rather than risen, which is deeply wrong it's another album like two are children's children's children from 1969 that nobody ever talks about as one of the best albums of 1969 and this is to me it's plainly obvious that this is and that this song deserves to be considered as one of the best pop songs of 1969 yeah both uh, stand up and tour children's children's children are they're albums that everybody bought but nobody talks about like they're so easy to find in used record bins but the, nobody nobody ever mentions them or writes about them except you know us hardcore moody's fans tend to really like to our children's children's children right stand up has the unfortunate distinction of not being hugely popular among tall fans because a lot of hardcore tall fans like more of their progressive rock stuff and huh. you stand up as more of a formative album there's some that really really like it but Tall fans are a lot more lukewarm on this one than I think they should be. I tend to find that with with Jethro Tull fans that if they're hardcore enough to uh, not have one of the more famous albums like Aqualon or Thick as a Brick as their favorite, they tend to go for something like Minstrel in the Gallery or Songs from the Wood, which hmm. is not to necessarily to speak ill of those albums, but I, but I've, I've tended to find that for hardcore fans, that's the direction they go, the more complicated and more intricate as opposed to going towards the more simple which is what I think. I think that's somewhat of a mistake because I feel that this was Jethro Tull's greatest era in many ways. Mm. And not everyone agrees with me. Well, their mid-70s retreat into simplicity, Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die, which I also think is a very good album, also that's tends good. to be somewhat dismissed by Tull fans. Yeah, I'm really surprised that this that stand-up isn't a, a fan favorite. I mean, I, I get that if you like complicated proggy music then you're gonna like their more complicated proggy albums but this has so much of the the jethro tull personality on it that 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 really surprises me but yeah reasons for waiting is uh like all of you have said it's a it's a wonderful song i love the arrangement as much as as all of you i really like that that one that that tense little break that keeps popping up that uh that phil beatboxed a little for you (laughs) it's like it threatens to uh to, to turn the song it's like where you think the drums are going to come in or something and then turn the song into something else but it's it's not it's just this this little cloud that floats through the song and then goes away and uh i i love the the flute harmonies it's it's yeah. it's not the most idiosyncratic flute playing for me and anderson but it's definitely like the prettiest flute playing on the album this is like the jethro tull song i wouldn't be afraid to put on a mix for my mom <laughs> I thought it was Mellotron when I was listening, uh, which I'm impressed by because he, he sort of just gets a different tone yeah. to it than he normally would. I'll say this in with regards to people who really like stand up. 
the one person who really loves stand-up is Ian Anderson. Yep. Who to this day cites it as one of the band's three best albums. He cites this, Aqualung, and Songs from the Wood as the band's three best albums. Huh. And yet I've also seen him cite Budapest as their best song. So take yeah, that as you will. Well, so when I saw Jethro Tull in the late 90s, they played a ton of songs from this album just because Ian Anderson likes it. Huh. Well, that's very interesting. Well, let's move on now to the last track on the album. This is 4,000 Mothers. That's a lot of mothers. my comfort zone talking about how much this band kicks ass <laughs> so this is one of the hardest rocking songs the band would ever perform the riff just relentlessly pounds you in the head it doesn't have the kind of heavy metal guitar sound of songs like aqualung or my god from the aqualung album but in terms of just relentless hard rocking power this is about as intense as they ever got the intensity of the lyrics matches the anger in the music. It's a relatively straightforward screw you to parents who wouldn't support Anderson's dream of being a famous musician. For what it's worth, Anderson has said that while there's some truth to the lyrics, his parents were generally more supportive than the song would suggest, and they eventually completely got on board with his choice of career. Another cool feature of this song is its fake ending. The song quote-unquote ends with a ferocious jam, but then comes roaring back as if the band just couldn't stop. They had to play more, as if the music was so powerful that it just couldn't be contained. band is playing so well it's so ferocious the band never really recorded any other songs like this it pretty much stands alone in their catalog which is a shame because it's freaking fantastic uh, when i saw tall live back in the late 90s slash early 2000s they used this track as an opener it's a fairly obscure song i don't think a lot of people in the crowd knew it but man it was a rush hearing the band open with this cut yeah that's a that's a deep cut to start with that's pretty great 
the the fake ending to this song is awfully similar to uh, the fake end on an album that would come out just a few months later, which is in the Court of the Crimson King. Mm. Uh, it, in the title track uh, ends in very much the same way. It comes to a close. You think it's over. You get up to turn the record off, and then you hear this little ride cymbal tapping away. Nope. No, sit back down. We're going to rock for about a minute or so more. Hmm. But my, my thoughts on this song are, are really pretty similar to my thoughts on Nothing Is Easy. It's it's just another kick-ass, heavy rock slash jazz kind of song. I like Nothing Is Easy slightly more, but only slightly. I think this is a great closer. And uh, the lyrics remind me, uh, even though this is a song that wouldn't be written until many years later, it reminds me a lot of uh, Guided by Voices' Gold Star for Robot Boy. Which is a song where where Robert Pollard is basically saying, "Hey, if if I had waited for your permission to be a big rock star, I I never would have done anything." Very similar sentiment, but that's what I have to say. Uh, John, how about you? A couple things. So one, when I saw Jethro Tull, they they opened with this one as well, and again, it, it was a sense of just me looking around the crowd to see like, is there any sense of recognition in in other people's and I. There wasn't like the people have been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they start playing this and there's just like this little bit of uh, uh, I'm going, but I'm holding it. I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very happy. One thing I really like about this is I feel like that the flute part that plays after he sings the line, it was they who were wrong and for them as a song is the answer to the question of what would it sound like if a flute could sneer? <laughs> Like it's it's such an angry line. I like, I like it so much. And thing I really like about the coda is how it comes back as such a happy variation of of the music that they've been playing up to that point. But then eventually, it just can't help itself, and it locks back into the into the angry, menacing version of the song. This song is so good. It's such a great closer. But, oh yeah, that flute line just do 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 do, and then the drums. It's so awesome. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a great moment. Uh Ben, how about you? It's a it's a really fun song. It can be a little hard to remember. I've heard the album a lot and I never know how this goes. It's possible that a song called For a Thousand Mothers was never going to be like a catchy rock anthem. Yeah. If it was Kiss singing I banged a thousand mothers parentheses yes including yours, <laughs> uh, it might have been a radio hit, but not this one. Um I should point out here that the album is just expertly paced. I think we've hinted at it, but you know, it goes rocker, ballad, wacky song, rinse, repeat from there. It never backs itself into a corner or or gets old, and and I'm always impressed by that. Uh, echoing what Mike said, this is a slightly less distinct take on the opening song, "A New Day Yesterday," uh, but anything in that vein is still going to be really exciting and satisfying. The rhythm section and Martin Barr are so good here, as they are on the rest of the album. Every time Ian Anderson starts pulling the band towards some place whose name begins with Ye Old, uh, <laughs> the band drags him back to rock and roll, and I appreciate it. Uh, I've seen a thousand mothers, and I rocked them all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then in parentheses, it says, till the break of dawn. <laughs> Well, we're having so much fun talking about Jethro Tull that we're not going to stop the episode there. We've got some contemporary singles to talk about, and the first of those is one you might know. It's called Living in the Past. I'm 
amazed the Kinks never got to this title first. <laughs> released on April 25th, 1969, just before the stand-up LP came out, and was one of the first public glimpses of the post-Abrahams version of the band, and boy was it ever clear how much the band had improved right from the jump. This song, a jazzy number in 5-4 time with a killer bass line, wonderful flute melody, great vocals, and cool string arrangement, is great in a way that nothing on the This Was LP good as it was, could have prepared listeners for. This is not just better than anything on the This Was LP, it's just leagues better, to the point where you wonder where it even came from. And throughout this episode, it may sound like I'm bagging on the This Was LP, which I'm really not. It's a good album. It's just standard, while material like this is clearly extraordinary. Yeah, this is, this is kind of the song where they became that Jethro Tull. Yeah. And unlike A New Day Yesterday, this song actually is as ubiquitous as it deserves to be. I mean, I I heard a, a yeah. Muzaki version once in an airport bathroom. It's just it's just everywhere. <laughs> and it's it makes sense that it is. I mean, you can't be in a bad mood while this is on. It it just makes me so happy whenever whenever I hear it. And I, I love that it's a pro living in the past song. Generally, if you use that phrase, it's, oh, you, you need to, why are you listening to Jethro Tull? You need to stop, you need to <laughs> let the past be the past. And Ian Anderson's just going all in. Yeah, let's, let's go living in the past. That sounds like a good idea. And uh, as far as like little details in the song are concerned, I just love that like disco fall in the strings right before you start singing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I think of when I think of this song. And this is very specific to me. I grew up in a town about an hour north of Charlottesville, Virginia, and I listened to Charlottesville's radio station, which was kind of a combination classic rock, modern rock station, 97.5, 3WV. And they had like little bumps that they'd play in between the songs. And I'll try to recreate my favorite transition (laughs) I ever heard on that station. 97.5, 3WV rocks. I laughed for five minutes. That's amazing. Uh, John, how about you? Uh, give me five minutes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so as this uh, starts off the original Masters compilation that uh, was my introduction uh, to Jethro Tull, this was the first Jethro Tull song that I remember hearing, and it is baffling to me looking back that I didn't like this at first. It's so perfect. It's it's so well balanced. The pop and the jazz elements are just in the perfect proportions with each other. There's just enough strains. The flute parts don't go on too long. It's in and out in in a pretty decent uh time frame. It's memorable as hell. And I know that some hardcore Jethro Tull fans, you know, 
Consider this too simplistic. To <gasps> consider this, consider this Jethro Toll for the masses. Bah, I say that. I just like this is so wonderful. This is this is right in the sweet spot of what makes me love this band. Some of their best words too. Yes. A five four times signature not esoteric enough for you. If anyone ever says, "Hey man, you're living in the past. Why are you listening to Jethro Tull?" You should say, "Did you know they have an album about the internet?" <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> no this is as great a song as everyone says the riff is the entire song but it, it's such a catchy riff and it, it doesn't get old throughout the running time and the arrangement is bouncy uh so yeah it, it's a great radio song i like it a lot all right so we're gonna move on to the second of these singles this is sweet dream they are made of this <laughs> <laughs> that they are of 1969, which was after the stand-up LP, and was a good indicator of the band's ever-increasing ambitiousness. This song sounds big, with the dark, foreboding riff played with the guitar, the flute, and the horns, leading into the brighter chorus. This song is an indicator of how the band would start stretching things a bit more, but it doesn't sound over the top or anything, it still fit very compactly into a pop song. Much like Living in the Past, I don't like it as much as Living in the Past, but it is a very, very good song. And it feels different from some of the stuff on Stand Up. You can tell that this was from different sessions. The band's follow-up album, Benefit, was a notable step down from the Stand Up album. You wouldn't be able to tell it from this song, which is fantastic. So uh, for a reason that I'll... I'll get to uh, later. I've actually heard this version of Sweet Dream uh, much less than a version uh, from the late 70s bursting out live album. Um, so when I think of think of this song, I tend to think of uh, a more hard rocking version uh, with more growly guitars. But it's really fun for me to come back to this original studio version. Um, it's it's very it's very majestic, but not in an over the top way. In the mid-song guitar break, I really like the ever-changing production on the guitar solo. It, it starts off in in the same vein of the production of the rest of the song, and then for a brief moment, 
um it's like shines through more like like a a lantern growing in intensity uh before it goes back to the darkness of the rest of the song it's it's a really neat effect and yeah this is a really really good song i will point out one thing about the bursting out live version it does feature a brief appearance from what ben would call ren fair tall (laughs) yes (laughs) as they throw in a little bit in the middle of it which reminds you oh yeah it's 1978 not 1970 And oh, how they danced. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ben, how about you? Yeah, I just I just don't know this one too well. I know the stand up album. I know the radio hits. And beyond that, I get kind of hazy. And so this one just hasn't stuck with me as much. I like what I heard, uh, but I just don't know it. Yeah, this is one that I, uh, I was never super familiar with. So my my thoughts on it are basically I like this song. It has horns. It has cowbell. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's like that late 60s, early 70s cowbell before they started like really taping it down. So it has that really ringy, cowy sound to it, which I like. I like cowy. <laughs> but we're going to move on now to the third of our uh, bonus tracks here. This is Witch's Promise. <laughs> Kissed by a witch one night And later insisted your feelings were true The witch's promise was coming Believing he listened while laughing you Yellow brown on the The Witch's Promise came out in January of 1970. The band was gearing up to record their third LP, Benefit, but unlike Sweet Dream, I think this one sounds more like the stand up material. It's one of my all time favorite Tall songs, easily. Much like Reasons for Waiting, it has a similarly wonderful arrangement. The music swells and builds, growing from the beginning with the sea of flutes that are dubbed on top of each other to just the acoustic guitar and drums until strings come in, more and more instruments pile in, and the whole thing is just a beautiful song, and it's one of the best melodies Ian Anderson ever wrote, so this is in my very top tier of Jethro Tull songs. One sad note about it, though, on a more technical level— Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree has been working on remixing and remastering the Tull catalog with great success. The Tull reissues he spearheaded were some of the best reissues I've ever seen. Sadly, however, he was unable to remix or remaster Witch's Promise because the master tape for the song is just gone. Because apparently when they were putting together a 25th anniversary box set, they shipped the master tape off to somebody else to do a remix because there's a disc on that box set of remixes and they just never got it back. So it's the one song from this era where the master is just MIA. Hopefully they'll eventually get it back and do something with it, but 
it's just gone. Nobody knows where it is. I just assume it's behind the Declaration of Independence. Of course. <laughs> That's where most things are. Yeah. Um, I'm with Phil. This is one of my very, very, very favorite uh, Jethro Tull songs. Um, it's it's my favorite of these these first three singles that we've talked about. Yeah, probably me too. Yeah, just just from start to finish. But in particular, there is a, a midsection uh, with the lyrics, keep looking, keep looking for somewhere to be while you're wasting your time. They're not stupid like he is. Meanwhile, leaves are still falling. You're too blind to see over this this Mellotron swell and and just the, these effects on 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 Ian's vocals that if, if I were to pick one uh, sequence from Jethro Tull that most frequently just gets stuck in my head and that I just just let it ride and I just let myself just enjoy it just for a, for a moment of bliss. That's probably my single favorite uh, stretch of Jethro Tull that I can think of. I think when the verse comes in after that, it's basically the yes. dictionary definition of majestic. Yes. This is a, a perfect arrangement. Um, again, it's, it's, it's bombastic, but it doesn't overwhelm you. I, I think I said that, that before, but it's even more so. And yeah, this song deserves every second and every single detail that it has. And this is another one like a sweet dream that I haven't heard that many times, but I like it a lot. Lend me your ear while I call you a fool is such a great opening line and such, such an Ian Anderson opening line. And it's also it's got Mellotron strings in it, which is the quickest way to my heart. <laughs> but uh, Ben, you got anything? I mean, I, I just don't know this one too well. But after hearing Phil's and, and John's description and how much they love it, I want to keep listening to it until I get at least close to there. All right. So we're going to close out this uh, appendix to the stand up album with another one you might have you might have heard at some point. This is Teacher. Hell yeah, we are. <laughs> in two different versions, a UK single version and a US album version that was put on the US release of Benefit, which has a slightly different track list from the UK version. I guess there's technically four different versions because both of these versions had stereo and mono edits, but yeah, there's two versions. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it simple. The single version is probably more relevant to this discussion, but I'm hosting the episode and I like the US album <laughs> version more, so that's the version I'm using. And since this song was released as a single and then kind of sort of ended up on Benefit, I think it's a good place to wrap up our discussion of Jethro Tull singles. 
This is another one I used to hear on the radio a lot of times. Just a great classic rock staple, which does not get as much classic rock radio play these days, because I'm pretty sure the classic rock radio stations have decided that Locomotive Breath is the only Jethro Tull song at this point. (laughs) But this is pretty much a song that's got it all. It's got a killer riff, tons of energy, great instrumental sections, and a generous helping of Anderson's superb flute playing. This was one of the first Tull songs I really got into because I mentioned earlier in the episode, the great MU Musicians Union compilation opened with Teacher, and it's just a great song to get introduced to Jethro Tull because it has much of what they do well and very little of what they do not do well. I guess I'll also point out that when uh, the hosts of Discord and Rhyme all got together for <laughs> for the eight-person annual get-together that happened in the before times where you could see other people, <laughs> we had a karaoke event, and obviously the first song I went for was Teacher. And I sang very vigorously from the couch. <laughs> this is my favorite Jethro Tull song. Um, and wow. in a certain sense, that makes me a simplistic plebe, <laughs> but I don't care. <laughs> I love this song so much. That riff is so good. It's it's hard to make a great 12-note riff, because if you mm-hmm. mess up one of those 12 notes, your song just kind of, your riff just kind of collapses on itself. It's a perfect 12-note riff. How great is the bass in there? Just a lot of what makes that riff so great is that, yeah, there's, there's so much good planes there's so many good arrangement details in it um it's it's just such a perfectly constructed rock song the lyrics are fantastic just from start to finish and that mid-song sparring between uh the guitars and the flute again we've we've mentioned different iterations of that uh, throughout this episode but that is absolute top-notch as far as these things go, it's just so good. I, I'm probably going to listen to that song immediately as soon as we're done here. <laughs> I, I've, I could never, ever in a million years get tired of Teacher in any of its versions. I don't think it's my favorite Jethro Tull song, but I certainly could not argue with anyone who selected it as such. Yeah, this is a great song, and it's it's frustratingly great because the only way to get it is if you, if you get it on a, a best-of compilation – or if you get benefit, which is kind of, eh. <laughs> but what I really like is is how they wait a bit to unleash that riff. They don't put it yeah. right at the start. They start kind of innocuously, and then they they build up to it, and then they let you have it. Then you realize, oh, this song is awesome. Ben, what do you have? Same as you guys. This is one of the all-time rock and roll riffs. Ian Anderson had a, had a genius for that kind of thing. He doesn't seem like he would, like he doesn't seem like the Keith Richards type. He doesn't, you know, make a big deal of wielding his axe and being the guitar god. But some of his riffs are, they're from the same place that Keith Richards got his. And not many musicians have had access to Keith Richards' stash. (laughs) Uh, Sort of improbably, Ian Anderson did. It's a great song. I would say that the riff is the best part and it's a little lesser from there, but it's still great. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. Uh, Phil, what are your final thoughts? Well, I'll keep it short and sweet. It's an all-time great album for all the reasons we've discussed, and it just makes me sad that there are no other albums quite like it, either in the Jethro Tull catalog or outside the Jethro Tull catalog. John, you got anything? I mean, I've I've said a lot about this album. <laughs> I, like, I, I wrote a gushing review on, on 
about this on my site about 20 years ago, and I still stand pr- by pretty much every word. I would just say it in general, if if you listen to this podcast regularly and you trust anything <laughs> about our taste as as a whole and you haven't heard this album, please, please do yourself a favor and go hear this. And yes, you don't hear many songs from this on the radio, but just trust us on this one. Trust what you trust the clips that you've heard here. This album is so great. It deserves all your attention and all your love. <laughs> you can spare some for your children if you if necessary. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you like, you know, rock music from the whole 69-70 period, even if you don't think you like the idea of Jethro Tull, this is an album that's worth checking out. And I'm really surprised to find out that I, I apparently like it more than a lot of Jethro Tull fans. I remember in the late, in the 90s, I used to look at the All Music Guide for their oh. reviews of albums. They oh, gave yeah. Stand Up two and a half stars out of five. And they gave A three stars. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is burned into my memory. It oh, still makes me angry, even though they fixed it eventually. <laughs> the All Music Guide has never made any sense. Ben, what what about you? I also like this album more than a lot of Jethro Tull fans. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not the world's biggest Jethro Tull fan, but I love this album. So thanks for picking it, Phil. All right. So if somebody hears Stand Up and they like it, what should they listen to next? Well, bad news. There's nothing else quite like it. That's the end of my section. No, I, I can <laughs> I can give you I can give you something. I really, really like Jethro Tull, almost certainly more than anybody else here, because I have a great fondness for their later material that a lot of people don't. By later material, I mean their 70s material. Things get dicey after you get past there. But I'd imagine if you're interested in Jethro Tull at all, you've probably heard Aqualung, because that's their big famous album. If you haven't heard Aqualung, you know, get on that. (laughs) Thick as a Brick is another great album. It sounds nothing like this at all. So liking stand-up is no indicator that you will like Thick as a Brick or vice versa. As the years go by with Jethro Tull, the idiosyncrasies grow. So I would say, you know, listen to some Jethro Tull tracks online, see what you like, maybe investigate more albums that way. I guess the album that's closest in this to sound is probably Benefit, which I guess I would still recommend, even though it's clearly weaker, but there's enough great material on there to still make it worthwhile. But yeah, for if you like Stand Up and Want More Tall, I would say Aqualong is probably where to go. Or the, I don't even know if it's still in print, Living in the Past compilation, which is basically just a bunch of singles all slapped together, most of which did not appear on albums. There's some classic material on that, too. So, yeah, the Living in the Past compilation. Actually, what am I talking about? Yeah, the Living in the Past compilation is your go-to after stand-up, if you like it. I highly recommend Thick as a Brick, even though recommending an album that's a 45-minute song, I know that's not the easiest sell. But if if you listen to it and you, you forget about it being a 45-minute song and you just let it sort of happen and you just let it... If you let yourself get drawn in, it's a it's a terrific listen. It is a lot more idiosyncratic. It shows off a lot of Jethro Tull's very, very strange, wacky sense of humor. But uh, as, as long as you're not uh, dead set against listening to an album that's one extended composition, you definitely need to hear that one. 
So when I was a little more hesitant to recommend Thick as a Brick, I was thinking of that just in the context of sounding like stand-up. Thick as a Brick is a candidate for my favorite album of all time, and yes, everyone should hear it. Just be aware, you're not getting anything like stand-up. Yeah. Uh, John, how about you? A very large part of my love for Jethro Tull uh, in general um, comes from how much I enjoy them as a live act. The best of their live albums, I've mentioned it a couple times in this episode, is uh, the 1978 album uh, Bursting Out, uh, which holds a special place for me because uh, for almost a decade, um, I've had a tradition where uh, every New Year's Eve, this is the last album that I listen to in a given calendar year, uh, which is part of the reason why I've heard Sweet Dreams uh, from that album uh, so many times. But uh, 70s live Jethro Tull uh, in particular is really great you really can't go wrong and in the uh, various reissues that have come out in the past decade uh, there is no shortage of great uh, live archive concerts included on on those um, often two two disc full concerts that I come back to uh, pretty often in terms of live material from around this time uh, there are performances from 1970 at the Isle of Wight Festival and at Carnegie Hall that are worth uh, seeking out um, each of them has uh, some passages in the middle that I used to like less. There's there there are passages with long uh, bits of of piano playing and uh, a piece from the debut called Dharma for One gets extended with a drum solo. But everything else on there on those performances is really good, and you'll hear a lot of of live stand up material on uh, those two albums. <laughs> pointed everyone towards the band's Aqualung album from 1971. Uh, I don't know the album too well overall, but my favorite Tull song is on there, uh, Locomotive Breath. Uh, it's got Ian Anderson's earthiest Keith Richards style riff, and they turn it into a fantastic rock song. It sounds as grimy and squalid as the world Anderson describes in the lyrics. And the shuffling man First time I got to play around with an auto harp, that, that was the first riff I figured out how to play. It it it, it doesn't really <laughs> translate to the instrument. <laughs> All right, so for our next episode, 
We will waltz with the possessed and hum along with the toads to the tune of Ghost Fireflies as Will takes us through the Handsome Family's indie folk masterpiece, Singing Bones. And if you don't know that name, they did Far From Any Road, the opening credits music for the first season of True Detective. Roll credits! Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Stand Up and other albums by Jethro Tull at many a fine record store. Please support them online right now if you can. Or you can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at discordpod on Twitter for news and updates, and on Instagram for pictures of animals with records on them. We're not on TikTok, though. (laughs) Check out Ben's book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie song by song on Amazon. He did not write a book about Jethro Tull, but he does have another one about the Who. Visit John's Music Review Archive at johnmcferranmusicreviews.org. Reminder, he rates albums in hexadecimal, which means he gives stand-up one of his highest ratings, an E. Yep. Check out my music, or a little bit of it anyway, at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com. Editing is by Rich, and production is by me. Yay! Woo! See you next album, and be ever wonderful. <laughs>